From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Welcome, welcome. It's Friday, November 10th, 2023. The 1898 Wilmington Massacre took place 125 years ago today. A bit more on that later in the program. As we acknowledge that somber moment in our past, we turn our attention to the latest round of elections, news and topics on this Veterans Day edition of our North Carolina News Roundup. The Poplar Drive fire has burned more than 400 acres and is 15% contained. With a new mayor just elected in Durham, city councilman and Durham business owner Leo Williams defeating challengers, state senator Mike Woodard. In the small town of Cameron between Sanford and Southern Pines, about 75% of voters supported allowing beer and wine sales at stores and restaurants. Across the state, we're going to bed knowing that we own our own bodies. I'm Ron DeSantis. Uh, I am Ron DeSantis. This is Governor Ron DeSantis. Hello, this is Governor Ron DeSantis. Hi, this is Governor Ron DeSantis, and I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Oh, no, I, I'm the killer on the field. I am never satisfied. I think that's why, you know, one trophy wasn't enough, two trophies weren't enough. Any number of trophies will never be enough. Just a sampling of what was heard and seen in the North Carolina news landscape this week as a wildfire continues to burn in the mountains. There were municipal results, an outcome in Ohio with potential ramifications elsewhere. A field hockey star pursues another trophy. And how do you pronounce the Florida governor's name? All that and a somewhat unexpected resignation that came late Thursday. Here to help us better understand the big stories of the week are Danielle Battaglia, Capitol Hill correspondent for the News and Observer, Jeffrey Billman, politics and law reporter for The Assembly, and Colin Campbell, Capitol Bureau Chief here at WUNC. Good morning. Welcome to all of you. Good morning. Colin, let's start with the newsiest bit of the morning. State Auditor Beth Wood announced late yesterday that she's stepping down in about a month. Why now? So uh, this all happened pretty fast. I mean, obviously, sort of to set up the background, uh, if you remember the news story from nearly a a year or so ago at this point, uh, where Beth Wood got in a a car accident after a holiday party in downtown Raleigh last Christmas season, Uh, it came out a few weeks later that she had uh, apparently left the scene of the accident. She was charged with hit and run. She ultimately pleaded guilty to that. Throughout that whole process, uh, she insisted that she was going to run for another term, Mm -hmm. that she recognized she'd made a mistake, uh, but she was going to move on. She wanted another term in office. Well, fast forward uh, to this month, uh, she makes a very abrupt announcement at the end of a legislative oversight hearing that was about a completely different topic, uh, that she has changed her mind. She's actually not running for re-election. A couple days later, it comes out that she's being indicted by the Wake County District Attorney on charges of misusing a state vehicle. Uh, Essentially, they're arguing that what she did was uh, took a state-owned vehicle with her on some personal errands, like to a spa treatment, to a dental Mm -hmm. appointment, um, and that's against state policy and turns out is actually a misdemeanor. Uh, So she's charged with that, and within a day or so of that, we get the announcement that she is resigning effective December 15th, so she does not want to be a distraction for the office that uh, she holds. One quick contextual note, the uh, accident that happened a year ago following the Christmas party was a hit-and-run that she was charged for, uh, and that was also – she was driving a state-owned vehicle. Uh, What happens from here? Who becomes the next state auditor because her term doesn't end for 14 months or so? So it's on Governor Roy Cooper to make an appointment. Uh, He has not announced yet what exactly that process looks like. Um, But ultimately, we imagine another Democrat will take over that office uh, going to next year. What will be interesting is that with Woods' announcement she wasn't going to run for your election, that's an open seat on the Council of State. Already a lot of candidates uh, jumping into that race. And so the question is, will 
Cooper pick someone who is going to be a candidate for state auditor next year and then would have the ban- uh, advantages of incumbency? Or does he pick someone who's not interested in holding that position in the long term? One more quick one on Auditor Wood. How surprised were you that this came? Or were you, were you kind of waiting on it? Or was it was it like, oh, she's she's out and all of a sudden? I'm surprised that this is what took her down. I mean, the, the whole, you know, vehicle crash, running away from the scene, possibly alcohol involved – that didn't wasn't enough to push her out of office, but something seemingly a little bit less uh, dramatic, less severe of taking the state vehicle to your dentist appointment was what ultimately did it for her. That that to me was a little bit surprising. Friday news roundup, North Carolina news roundup here on Due South. Beth Wood is stepping uh, down, resigning uh, somewhat unexpectedly next month, December 15th. We're going to move to municipal elections. A couple of familiar faces, one in Charlotte and Fayetteville. There were uh, new uh, mayors who will uh, rise to the ranks in Chapel Hill and also in Durham. It's an overwhelming feeling, but it was a mandate that the city of Durham stated tonight. Uh, the expectations have been made clear. The agenda is set. And I'm ready to work. That is Leo Williams, mayor-elect of Durham. Jeffrey Billman of the Assembly, tell us a little bit about Leo Williams' victory. Leo is a um, Leo is a city council member. He's been a city council member for only two years, but he's a business owner. He owns a restaurant with his wife uh, called Zwelly's uh, in downtown Durham. Um, and he is... Uh, he was pretty much a consensus candidate. I mean, Mike Woodard got in, and Mike has a lot of um, experience in the city. He was on city council for a long time. But uh, Leo had the backing of all the major PACs, um, or uh, the Durham Committee and the P- People's Alliance anyway. And that was enough to win rather easily. I think he won by about 25 points, um, which uh, most people in the city that I knew expected. Um, and, you know, he, he's one of those guys that uh, everybody kind of likes, um, and or at least likes enough. And, um, you know, he's also been frustrated at the pace of, of city council's action on development issues. And I think he's going to want to move things along a little faster than Elaine O'Neill has done. And that's probably going to cause a little friction. So Clearly a political newcomer if he's if he's widely liked. Um, tell us briefly before we're going to step aside for a moment, what were a couple of the issues? You can just list them and we're going to get into a little bit more on the other side. I think the biggest issue in Durham has been uh, housing and development. They have a they have a they're rewriting their housing code um, and it's been uh, incredibly contentious for the last year. That's Jeffrey Bellman of the Assembly. Colin Campbell, WNC Capital Bureau Chief, is here as well. And Danielle Battaglia from McClatchy is on the line. Friday, North Carolina News Roundup rolls on in a moment. This is Due South from North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Welcome back. It's the North Carolina News Roundup on Due South. And we continue now with Colin Campbell, WNC Capital Bureau Chief, Jeffrey Billman, staff writer at the Assembly, and Danielle Battaglia, Capitol Hill correspondent for McClatchy. Her byline appears often in the Charlotte Observer and News and Observer. Jeffrey, let's keep rolling with uh, this Durham mayoral election. Uh, you talk about some of the issues that were um, on the table uh, for Mayor-elect Leo Williams in his campaign. Uh, give us a, a, a sense for those who might not follow Durham politics closely. Uh, are we looking uh, at, at folks quickly coalescing around the mayor? There, there's been some acrimony in, in local politics here. Is that going to end? Well, Durham was a city where, um, you know, there was an actual fistfight behind the scenes and after a city council meeting earlier this year. And so okay. I don't think I don't think there's going to be um, – a lot of kumbaya. I, mm. I kind of suspect there won't be. Um, I, I think the city council 
might get along a little better. I mean, so basically you, you've had the city divide into uh, a camp that wants to build a lot more housing and build a lot more, uh, um, um, make it easier, I think, for for development to to be a little bit reductive about it because it's, it's much more complicated than that. And people who are resisting some of that, uh, those ideas, um, and it's become extremely contentious. And it's also sort of uh, um, built these weird, strange bedfellows, right, where you have yeah. uh, a candidate uh, who is aligned with the Democratic Socialists uh, of America, endorsed uh, in the city council election by the Durham committee, which two years ago was warning about a, a communist takeover in, in, hmm. in the city of Durham. So you have uh, um, so you have these kind of weird alliances that right. have taken place among these um, pro and, and sort of, I don't want to say anti-development camps, but to be reductive about it, that's kind of what it is. Sure. Um, and, you know, and that's pretty much the fault line right now. Uh, and I think there is a, a, a pro-development majority in the city council, right? Uh, and it got elected. Yeah. And I suspect um, that that um, Mayor Williams, Mayor Luck Williams, will, will want to move that through. Um, no. That's his agenda. It was really a good night for pro-development factions within municipal races in town in North Carolina, particularly in the, the fast-growing areas. Mm-hmm. Durham, was that Chapel the case? Hill. Chapel Hill was kind of the same deal. There was a sort of a slower growth, more... Uh, resistant to development faction that lost pretty mm-hmm. big in Chapel Hill. I live in a Wake County suburb where that was also the fault line. Mm-hmm. Again, the slow growth faction lost there pretty big as well. Let me get well. Let me just note two things. One, cheekily, uh, no communist takeover yet. Uh, that no. is important just to remind listeners about. Uh, but number two, as we think about development, uh, on the other side of this, a counterweight to some degree is affordable housing is not here, but I'm throwing out the example of like rent control. Uh, uh, do we expect that there, there's the pro development policies, but in terms of affordable housing policies, what do you expect to see coming out of these elections, if anything? So th- th- there are obviously uh, municipalities are limited in North Carolina in terms of what they can do. They can't impose rent control. They can't impose, um, they can't require in most cases, unless they own the land and are selling it, uh, they can't require developers to include a set aside affordability, uh, affordable units, that sort of thing. Um, what they can do and what a lot of them are trying to do is encourage developers to build more and build more densely. So you, um, you, you can get rid of sprawl, um, or you can limit sprawl rather. And you can, you know, the idea is if you have more, if you have more supply, you can meet demand and that'll uh, reduce pressure on, on prices. Um, the problem is when you, obviously when you have a lot more, uh, um, supply, it changes the character of neighborhoods and also it doesn't reduce prices right away. I think as anyone who's looked at buying a house in the last, um, five years can tell you. So it, it has a lot of, um, you know, uh, sort of countervailing pressures. We're going to bring Danielle Battaglia in here in a moment. And Danielle, jump in here at any point. I want to uh, go a little bit lighter with the municipal uh, in a moment. Before I go uh, lighter, I do want to note a number. I'm going to find it here in my notes. And if I don't find it immediately, um, I'm just going to do it from memory. And that is uh, the number $200,000. This to me uh, struck me as a, a notable and significant number. But I want you all to weigh in and be like, ah, Jeff, that's really not that notable at this point. Uh, Charlotte City Council member Tariq Bokhari spent $200,000 from his own campaign on a city council race. This is from a report from Steve Harrison, public radio reporter at WFAE, who was here on the North Carolina News Roundup last week. Uh, combined with funds from party coffers, Bokhari's reelection efforts ran up a bill of almost $400,000. I think I mentioned this is for a city council race. Is that just par for the course occasionally in big cities? No, that's a huge number, is it not? It, it is for municipals, but I mean, statewide congressional legislative races have gotten so expensive mm-hmm. that, that seems like chump change by comparison for those of us who are used to watching those bigger number races, right? 
It is a lot for, for city council. Though. Yeah. I mean, for even in Charlotte, I think. And, and some of that, I think, is is Republicans only have a couple of seats in Mecklenburg County. It's yeah. an increasingly blue county. Tarek Bakari, the Republican who won by a very, I think, narrow victory there Correct. in that race, um, is one of the few Republicans um, on the Charlotte uh, city government uh, beat. So he's, you know, gets a lot of support from his own party. Republican Tarek Bakari. Apologies if I just botched that name. Uh, would like from each of you quickly uh, a, a a random takeaway and esoteric. I'm going to point to uh, the mayor of Sunset Beach, mayor-elect, received 96% of the vote, Shannon Hot Dog Williams. Uh, just a, a weird, quirky thing from election night. What struck y'all or jumped out, if anything? Colin? Um, you know, that I was watching a lot of the, uh, the write-in races. Um, there are some places where no one filed to run for mayor of certain small towns. So I looked at the town of Mooresboro, which is just west of Charlotte, population about 300 people. The new mayor there won with 10 write-in votes. 10 write-in votes. That got okay. you the job of mayor. Okay. I mean, I think there, there, there are two. And one uh, Colin referred to earlier, which was that uh, um, I think the pro-development uh, um, sort of contingents in a lot of the, the fast-growing cities had a good night. The other is I think that... Um, and, and a lot of these races are, are nonpartisan, but I think Democrats in general had a fairly good night. I mean, Wilmington, they swept the city council races uh, and, and Democrats tend to perform, perform well in urban areas. But, um, you know, I think nationally Democrats had a pretty good night. And I think that was also reflected in at least most of the races that I was watching on a local level here. Vi Lyles uh, earns another term in Charlotte. Mitch Colvin gets a fourth term in Fayetteville, and Jess Anderson will be the next mayor of Chapel Hill. I want to build on what Jeffrey Billman from the Assembly uh, was just noting there, and we're going to widen the lens a little bit uh, and move out to a national perspective. There were notable uh, elections that played out in Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio on Tuesday night. Abortion access is the law of the land in Ohio. A win for reproductive rights supporters in the Buckeye State, where lawmakers have passed six-week abortion bans. Yesterday, a majority of Ohio voters passed a constitutional amendment to enshrine access to abortion, contraception, and miscarriage care. That was reporter uh, Lisa Desjardins on PBS NewsHour uh, on Wednesday reviewing uh, a notable uh, constitutional amendment that played out uh, in Ohio. Danielle Battaglia joining us on the line from uh, Capitol Hill. Danielle, what was the scuttlebutt, for lack of a better word? What was the reaction uh, as you spoke with uh, members of Congress, congressional staffers coming out of that decision by the voters uh, in Ohio on Tuesday? I think Republicans were a little blindsided by it. I think that um, Democrats had a really good night on Tuesday night, and Republicans realized that they needed to work on their messaging going into 2024, and it brought some concerns to the forefront that they might not be as aware of what they thought voters wanted as they are. But we've had a number of votes in different states at this point, and it seems like the will of the people in the South, in the Midwest, in the uh, the, the coastal elite areas, it seems like it has been clear. Does it not? Like you say blindsided, and I don't, I don't disagree with you, but I'm a little surprised at blindsided at, at this point in the, you know, dozen or so votes we've, we've seen play out following the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I think that Republicans see the abortion issue as a very black and white issue. And I think when Roe was overturned, it really made people start to think, what if it was me? What about me? Um, I think there's a different national conversation happening than uh, was happening previously. And I'm not sure Republicans have caught up to that national conversation. Okay, fair enough. Uh, 
voters in Ohio uh, voted in favor of uh, affirming the uh, right access to uh, reproductive care in the state constitution, as well as uh, marijuana, recreational marijuana. Uh, Colin, please tell us why those types of ballot initiatives are almost certain not to be here in 2024. Yeah, but here we don't have any sort of citizen-initiated initiated, uh, ballot referenda. So if you want to get a bunch of people to sign a petition and say, uh, we'd like to have this on the ballot uh, and vote on legalizing marijuana or uh, eliminating abortion restrictions, you can't do that under North Carolina's constitution. To uh, make that change, you would need a constitutional amendment that would initiate with the legislature either to create such a process in the state constitution or to have a constitutional question about any of these topics and uh, the current dynamics in the legislature, they're not going to put a vote about abortion or uh, marijuana to the general electorate. That's just not something they're interested in doing. Okay. That acknowledged, based on what happened on Tuesday in Ohio, does it make you feel any more, do you think it's more likely that we're going to see uh, marijuana or abortion legislation in this state, or do, do those results make it less likely that it's going to be on the legislative docket next year? I think it uh, on the abortion issue, probably less likely recognizing, I mean, ultimately there there's enough gerrymandering that the Republicans are pretty well assured, but there is some question about whether they will keep their veto-proof supermajorities. Uh, and so I think they may tread lightly on that abortion question and sort of look at what they did this year with new abortion restrictions as good enough for now to appease the wing of the party um, that favors strict abortion restrictions. On marijuana, I would be surprised if it didn't come up again. Um, the Senate obviously has already passed a very strict version of medical marijuana. The House chose not to take that up this year because they didn't have enough support within the Republican caucus. Uh, but once you get past the March primaries and they're no longer worried about someone coming at them from the right in a you know anti-marijuana stance, mm -hmm. there may be more of a willingness, particularly seeing those polls nationally uh, and in other states, uh, to maybe take a second look at that bill and maybe it's going to have a little bit more traction in the short session next year. North Carolina News Roundup here on Due South on WNC. Colin Campbell, Danielle Battaglia, and Jeffrey Billman are here offering analysis, insights, context uh, as to some of what played out this week uh, in uh, the North Carolina news landscape. Jeffrey, what else struck you from national elections on uh, on, on Tuesday and, and anything with kind of a North Carolina bent to it? I, I think one of the things is, you know, abortion is one, I think, seven out of seven referenda since since the Dobbs decision in, in uh, last year. Um, and I think I would I would bet a bunch of money that if the same thing was on a, on a ballot here, that it would pass with, you know, 50, 55 percent vote. I, one of the things that's really interesting to me is that I think with the Supreme Court of the state, um, um, you know, allowing essentially political gerrymandering uh, and um, the federal uh, after the Rucho decision in 2019, the federal courts allowing political gerrymandering. You're going to see a greater disconnect, especially without ballot referenda in the state, between what people want and what the legislature is willing to give, because there is going to be a, 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 a lack of, I guess, responsiveness or a lack of accountability. They're, they're, they are, the legislature is going to be responsive to the voters that they selected rather than to the mood of the state as a whole and, and until you have these sort of slower shifts in demographics and, and relocation geography, that sort of thing which takes a lot of time and it's not going to be as fast as you might expect. I mean, I think that's going to be one of the more interesting, um, you know, things to watch over the next five or six years until the next redistricting cycle. Do you have a thought about what could uh, run against that 
that uh, tide and and change it? I mean, I think if, if if they come out and try and do a stricter abortion ban next year, they will probably not be happy with the results. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, an issue is, is that you deal with is that the, the uh, swingy districts, there are not very many of them under these maps, but they are in They're the enough. suburbs. Um, and those are areas where abortion could be a big issue. And, and I mean, I also think, uh, you know, I don't think uh, um, my sense is that Berger and, 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 and more um, the, the legislative leaders aren't sure. particularly close to Mark Robinson, but they'd still like him to win, um, obviously. Um, and, and whether he can duck that issue further, I don't know. No, but if, they, if, they're, if they're coming out with a six-week ban or something like that, there's no way he can. And I wonder about the consolidation of power with Berger and more across these last 10 years or so. But when you get districts that are so gerrymandered, and they are, mm-hmm. uh, as a reminder, this isn't like a – this is not a spicy statement. Districts are just gerrymandered. But what we've seen with some debates – and take the casino debate, for example, earlier this year uh, – sometimes the power uh, is, is deconsolidated. Is that a word? Uh, and it goes to these these far-right factions and you, you wonder if there's enough of a push um, from some hardline legislators if an abortion ban – would see more of a light of day next summer. Or well, next, I mean, yeah. casinos had an interesting dynamic because you had this this sort of you know the religious conservatives aligning with with some Democrats who worried about um, you know sort of enhancing poverty and things like that, and you had this um, you know I guess sort of this coalition friendly contingent that had the legislative leadership that just couldn't get you know its its coalition on board um, and 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 didn't have enough Democratic votes to come on and to, to to get this thing through. Um, I don't know that abortion is the same way. I mean, Democrats are going to be pretty uniform to the degree that they still exist in the legislature. They're going to be pretty aligned on on, on blocking any sort of restrictions. Um, I think you're talking – I think Colin's right. I mean, any restrictions on abortion would, are going to come down to the handful of people of, of, of Republicans in swing districts that are going to have to, you know, figure out if, if, if the party pressure is, is worth, um, you know, what's going to happen in November. And noted earlier, will uh, there be veto-proof majorities? Will the governor's veto have teeth come 2025? And of course, uh, what party will the governor uh, hail from after the next election? It's the Friday News Roundup here on Due South on North Carolina Public Radio. Jeffrey Billman from the Assembly is here. So too is Danielle Battaglia from McClatchy, as well as uh, our own Colin Campbell, Capitol Bureau Chief. Friday News Roundup, North Carolina style, rolls on here in a moment on Due South on WUNC. Welcome back. This is the Friday North Carolina News Roundup on Due South. I'm Jeff Tiberi here with Colin Campbell, Danielle Battaglia, and Jeffrey Billman trying to touch on a number of stories, political and otherwise, that played out this week uh, in North Carolina and beyond that could uh, very well have implications here in our state as we head toward uh, that notable election in 2024. Do want to take a moment and note that on this day 125 years ago, A group of white supremacists led a political riot in Wilmington, North Carolina, following a victory in the local elections in which a new multiracial government, a fusion party, took power. A violent mob stormed black neighborhoods, burned the offices of the black-owned newspaper, and killed, murdered, as many as 300 black people. They overthrew the duly elected mayor and forced elected officials to resign at gunpoint. The Wilmington Insurrection of 1898, 125 years ago today, remains the only successful political coup in American history. There have been books written on this subject. It is uh, a lesser known and very important chapter in our state's history. Um, You all uh, know about it. And uh, Jeffrey, you uh, spoke with David Zucchino um, years ago, uh, who wrote a a book about uh, the 1898 uh, massacre. What, What do you recall about chatting with him? I think 
the the one thing that struck me about talking with David and about his book in general is is the sense of what people were taught for generations after the massacre was just wrong. I mean, it, it was it was they were taught that you know these people were restoring like there there was fraud and they were restoring this the city government right. and, and it just wasn't what happened. This wasn't a fringe movement. This wasn't these were this was the state. This yeah. was this was what happened. It's a reminder that people don't give up power easily, right? And uh, it's useful to remind ourselves to question narratives that are convenient or that fit with our preconceptions. One thing that struck me in reading that book and then sort of tying it into modern politics is the degree to which some of these racial issues in the Wilmington area continue to percolate up, you know, 100 years later, one being the uh, latest redistricting that moves the uh, what are referred to as the Wilmington Notch, basically mm. a cluster of black neighborhoods in Wilmington, uh, taking it out of the uh, New Hanover County Senate, State Senate District, putting them in Brunswick County, where uh, their votes will be sort of diluted by the redness, the Republican nature of Brunswick County, and making the race that's currently for the Republican-held Senate seat of Michael Lee in Wilmington less competitive. Um, so some of these issues, I mean, obviously it's not nearly as dramatic as the massacre that occurred in 1898, but certainly uh, the racial issues are still I mean, there today. It, def it definitely gave me like a, a the past is, isn't even past vibe. Exactly. It. Yes. It, it's a fascinating story. Uh, and we will have more on um, the the history uh, as well as uh, some, some voices reflecting on it. Uh, there are some ceremonies that are playing out this week in New Hanover County. Uh, that's later this month on Due South. We'll have more uh, on the Wilmington insurrection of 1898. We're going to make a hard turn here, uh, and we're going to go to political messaging and pronunciation here on the Friday North Carolina News Roundup. I am Ron DeSantis. I'm Ron DeSantis. I am Ron DeSantis. This is Governor Ron DeSantis. Hello, this is Governor Ron DeSantis wishing everyone a Merry Christmas. Hi, this is Governor Ron DeSantis, and I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Hi, I'm Governor Ron DeSantis, and I want to congratulate all of you at Rumble as you open your U.S. headquarters. Danielle Battaglia joining us on the line from Capitol Hill. She's the uh, Capitol Hill correspondent from McClatchy. Danielle, how do you pronounce the uh, Florida governor's name? I say DeSantis. Now, I'm, I'm obviously having, trying to have a little bit of fun here, but I noticed this this week with uh, several reporters calling him Governor DeSantis. And I thought— yeah, I feel like the NPR standard is DeSantis, but I tend to hear most people colloquially say DeSantis. And in the clips you played, he said it two different ways, right? Was I hearing that right? You were hearing it correctly. And if people were—go go ahead, Danielle. I was going to say he changes a lot, but I can go on a rant about this because my last name is pronounced, I think, four different ways. But do you pronounce it? Oh, interesting. But do you pronounce it four different ways or do you pronounce it Bataglia? I always say Bataglia. My sister has tried to switch and it doesn't work on the East Coast. Actually, I will say if you're like in New York, people will say it correctly. Uh, we say it Americanized. Uh -huh. I think... Um, so, like, I have the feeling he's trying to change to whichever way is the right way. But when you're doing that during a presidential run, it's not the best time to experiment with your last name. It, it just struck me as likely purposeful because so much of politics is purposeful. Even if you, it wasn't your decision, someone is telling you you have to do a thing here. Uh, and it did make me uh, or I thought of two other examples uh, pertaining to this DeSantis, DeSantis umbrella. I call him DeSantis for the record. Uh, there is our vice president, who is Kamala Harris. Uh, but 
Back when she was a U.S. senator, prior to her vice presidential run, you would hear Kamala pretty often. And there was there was a slight shift. You know, I also wonder if there's an effort to sound more or less, I don't know, I hate to use the word foreign, but like if you say Ron D. Santis, it almost sounds like you're saying a middle initial as opposed to a last name that right. sounds Anglicized, a little on the, uh, yeah. you know, maybe it's Italian side maybe. And then in Durham, the mayor-elect, Leo Williams, you follow this a lot more closely than I do, Jeffrey, but uh, somebody had mentioned to me that he he wasn't Leo until this campaign. He was Lee, Leandro or Leonardo. Leonardo, Leonardo. yeah. yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, I think people try to obviously tailor their their names, their likenesses, or their images uh, to the audience they're, they're speaking to. I mean, I think I mean, DeSantis, I think his name pronunciation is probably the least of his image problems right now. Um, you know, he has... There was yeah, people are concerned about the boots as the well. The boots. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's like what a thousand word story about whether he wears lifts and um, the the whatever's going on when he tries to smile. Um, like that, that's those are those are I think in terms of like imaging. If I was if I was working on his campaign, those would be the two bigger things that I would I would be concerned about. Um, he, you know, teaching him to act like a human uh, seems mm-hmm. to be more problematic right now. You have to remember, too, though, when uh, people are immigrating to America, especially like with Italians, we weren't accepted right away. We were known for having stolen jobs from Americans who were already here. And so there was a push for us to Americanize our names Mm -hmm. to fit in and uh, seem more American. And so I think, like, for me... I am a public figure and my family doesn't love that I'm using Battaglia instead of Battaglia Mm. or whichever variation we're using. So I think there could be a push for that. Like if you're going to be on a national stage, go with whatever the actual pronunciation of DeSantis is. Um, But I don't know. I don't know what's actually going on behind the scenes. Interesting. North Carolina News Roundup here on Due South. We're going to shift from pronunciation and politics to uh, NCAA field hockey championships. Tell me a little bit about who, like who you are, what makes you tick, right? Like, are you the goofball? Are you the class clown? Are you the most competitive person in the room? Are you, I, I don't know you at all, yeah. but who are you? Oh no, I, I'm the killer on the field. I am never satisfied. I think that's why, you know, one trophy wasn't enough, two trophy, trophies weren't enough. Any number of trophies will never be enough. Um, I think that bleeds into the program totally. I think we're a team of that. I obviously love what I do and have fun doing it, but I really, I'm just driven to outplay, outwork, whatever, everybody. That's the voice of Erin Matson. She's UNC's field hockey coach. I don't know how ripe this will be for discussion. We also don't have a lot of time left, but I wanted to note uh, Coach Matson for a couple of reasons or, or a few reasons. She's a four-time national champion, three-time national player of the year, ho-hum, a, a five-time ACC champion. She's not a player anymore. She's the 23-year-old head coach of the Tar Heels field hockey team, uh, and the Tar Heels are in action Today, noon on this Friday, uh, in the NCAA tournament at home, they're the one seed in the field hockey Division One championships. And uh, ho-hum down the road, Duke is the uh, third seed in uh, the field hockey championships. Uh, Duke has got American at home in Durham today, here in Durham, and uh, North Carolina will uh, face off with William and Mary. And yes, if you're wondering, the Tar Heels and the Blue Devils could meet uh, a week from Sunday for the national championship on the field hockey front. Anything to jump in here? So I actually have been to Please. one, uh, at least part of one UNC field hockey game this season. Um, my parents live fairly close to where they play, and because those games are free and easy to attend, uh, they've sort of become ad hoc fans of, of UNC field hockey. So they brought me in. Uh, you Just like the youthful energy of this team with this very young coach, 
in front of a crowd that's incredibly enthusiastic, but also incredibly small compared to other UNC sports. I mean, there's just not that many right. field hockey fans out there, but they're really into it, and they all seem to be having a really good time. Part of the pep band will come at times to play at the field hockey games. It's it's truly an experience, uh, and we will have a, a a longer, fuller, more complete, an actual interview uh, with Coach Matson next week here on Do South. Finally, Country Music Association Awards were held on Thursday. The Big Night saw a Song of the Year win for folk singer Tracy Chapman for her 1988 hit song, Fast Car. This was 35 years after its release. Now, the track, if you're not familiar with it, regained popularity over the summer following a cover by North Carolina native Luke Combs. Chapman becomes the first black woman to win Song of the Year at the CMA Awards. You got a fast car And I want a ticket to anywhere Maybe we make a deal Maybe together we can get somewhere Any place is better Starting from zero, got nothing to lose Maybe we'll make something Me, myself, I got nothing to prove And late-blooming success seemed to be something of a running theme of the night as 39-year-old rapper-turned-country star Jelly Roll took home Best New Artist. We're going to uh, get toward the end of the roundup here with uh, a message for the weekend and for life. This is an excerpt from Jelly Roll's acceptance speech. Most importantly, there is something poetic about a 39-year-old man winning new artist of the year. I don't know where you're at in your life or what you're going through, but I want to tell you to keep going, baby. I want to tell you success is on the other side of it. I want to tell you it's going to be okay. I want to tell you that the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror for a reason because what's in front of you is so much more important than what's behind you. Let's party, Were you Jelly Roll fans, or did you just become one here on the Friday News Roundup? I don't think I'd heard of him until just now, and now I'm a fan. Yeah, I mean, that that level of enthusiasm for life and success when you're in your 30s, because, like, you know, I, I, sometimes I feel like I'm, I don't have that energy anymore. Um, As a fellow 39-year-old, it was like a shot in the arm for me. I was like, who's this guy? I like this. <laughs> yeah. Jeffrey Billman is a staff writer at the Assembly. Uh, Danielle Battaglia is McClatchy, uh, Capitol Hill correspondent, and Colin Campbell is the Capitol Bureau Chief here at WNC. Thanks to all of you for your, the time this morning. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. We will uh, say thanks to you as well for listening and for, of course, supporting Due South and North Carolina Public Radio on this uh, fundraiser Veterans Day edition of the Friday News Roundup. This program was, uh, this episode was produced by uh, the wonderful Stacia Brown. This program is produced by well, lots of wonderful folks. Coldell Charco and Rachel McCarthy are uh, our other producers. Erin Kiever is our executive producer. A big happy birthday to her husband, Brett, this weekend. And our technical director is Denarius Sneakerhead Thomas. For my colleague, Leonida Inge, my name is Jeff DeBerry. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to get past episodes and editions at DoSouthRadio.org. We'll talk with you again on Monday.